0: It's a very common objection. If God is real, then why doesn't he prove it? Why doesn't God do something to show us that he is real and needs to be taken seriously? You've probably heard that said. Maybe you've said it yourself. It's an understandable request, but by no means new. In Mark's record of Jesus' life and teaching, he records Jesus publicly performing all sorts of amazing deeds that accompany Jesus' teaching. Yet in chapter 8 of Mark's account, we read this. The Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders, came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Despite all that Jesus had done, feeding large crowds, healing multitudes of the sick, dramatically expelling unclean spiritual forces, still the Pharisees say, give us a sign. They want a miracle on demand. And it's not unusual. It persists right through Jesus' ministry. In Mark chapter 15, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying, Mark records that the teachers of the law and the chief priests mock Jesus, saying, Let this Christ, the King of the Jews, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. They're still asking for a miracle on demand. Well, they don't get one then, and they don't get one here in Mark 8 either. Look at Jesus' response in chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Jesus groaned in his spirit, that is, he's filled with dismay or despair, and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them. They've had plenty of signs. Jesus is not doing miracles on demand. Their refusal to accept the miracles he's already done and their demand for yet another one is indication enough of the state of their heart towards Jesus. They've had their chance. Jesus then gets into the boat with his disciples and warns them, Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. It's very unusual to group the Pharisees and Herod Those two groups hated each other. What yeast do they have in common that the disciples need to be wary of? Well, the answer is both groups refused to accept who Jesus claimed to be. They did not accept him or believe in who he really was. Jesus describes this unbelief as yeast. Why yeast? Well, the bread that the Jews used at Passover was Unleavened—that That is, it had no yeast in it. It was flat bread. It had to be no yeast bread to be useful in those special moments for God's people. If yeast got mixed in with it, even just a small amount, then the bread was useless for God's purposes, for God's people. Jesus is saying, watch out for that spirit of unbelief. It renders you useless in the plans of God, as the people of God. So when we demand a sign from God we're being just like those Pharisees we show ourselves to be hard-hearted towards God and who Jesus claims to be because we've ignored the signs that Jesus has already done all the signs that we have recorded for us in the New Testament Gospel accounts these miracles have been recorded so that you can see the evidence Pointing to who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't do miracles to order. He's already done them. They've been written down for you. Are you going to accept them? Accept him? Or will you fall prey to the same yeast of unbelief that excluded the Pharisees and Herod from God's plans and God's people? So Jesus is in the boat on the lake with the disciples. And Jesus and us as readers, we're hoping that the disciples are going to do much better than the Pharisees and Herod, that they will heed Jesus' warning to be careful and watch out for that yeast of unbelief when it comes to Jesus. But even in their response to Jesus' warning, it's apparent that the disciples don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. They don't understand this parable or this metaphor of the yeast which means that they don't really get Jesus. See, what are you meant to do if you don't understand one of Jesus' parables? Think back to Mark chapter 4 and the parable of the soils. You're meant to ask Jesus. You're meant to follow up with him, because to those on the inside, Jesus explains everything. But it remains opaque for those on the outside. But what do the disciples do here? Well, chapter 8, verse 16. They discuss it with one another. And consequently, they don't understand Jesus' metaphor. They think Jesus is saying, you should have brought more bread with you guys in the boat. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. And that reflects that they actually don't understand who Jesus really is. Which is where Jesus drives the conversation. He says to them, when I fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish, how many basketfuls of leftovers did you guys pick up? 12. Okay, and when I fed the crowd of 4,000, again, with just a few loaves, how many basketfuls of leftovers did you pick up? Seven. So why would I be telling you off for not bringing bread? Who do you think I am? The disciples sort of get who Jesus is, but not really. If they'd really understood, then they'd be on the same page as Jesus. They'd have confidence in who he is. And they certainly wouldn't be worried about an undersupply of bread. See, the questions Jesus asked the disciples here in verses 17 and 18 are key to this whole section. He asks, do you still not see or understand? That is, are they no better off than the crowds, those on the outside, who listened to the parables in chapter 4, who were ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding? Are they no better than the Pharisees and Herod? He asks, do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? Have they not understood the significance of Jesus feeding the crowds, the 5,000 and the 4,000, like God himself did in the Exodus? Have they not understood the significance of Jesus calming the storm with a command? Or of him walking on the water like only God can do? Have they really failed to see and hear? And in the middle of those two questions, Jesus names the real issue. Are your hearts hardened? Have they succumbed to the unbelieving yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod? Have they got hardened hearts resistant to the presence of God in their midst in the person of Jesus? And we fear that the answer is yes, their hearts are hardened because Mark's already told us that that has been a problem for them when they didn't understand the significance of Jesus feeding the 5,000 back in chapter 6 verse 52. It seems that maybe things are no better now after Jesus has fed 4,000 more. And if we jump ahead to Jesus' next interaction with the disciples, our fears for their hearts are relieved, but they're not so much. See, the driving question up to this point in Mark's whole account has been, who is this man? Who is this Jesus who does these amazing healings, proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, who calls people to reverse the direction of their lives, to repent, turn back to the one true God? Who is this guy? And so Jesus asked the question of the disciples. Who do people say I am? They report the standard list of theories. John the Baptist, back from the dead. Elijah, the Old Testament prophet returned. Or one of the prophets, like in the Old Testament days. There's nothing new here. Mark has already reported back in chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, that those were the... Competing circulating theories at the time. But then Jesus presses the disciples. They've been with him the whole time. They've been eyewitnesses to all of Jesus' ministry. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Do they see and understand or not? Have they got it? Have they got him? And Jesus speaks up. You are the Christ. Whoa! Streamers and party poppers! Peter, speaking for the disciples, he has got it. Up until this point, it's only been the unclean spirits or Mark himself, as he narrates the account, who've clearly identified Jesus as the Christ, the King of God's coming kingdom. This is a time for celebration. Peter's got it. Only not so fast. Notice Jesus' response in verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Hang on, Peter's got it right. But don't tell anyone? Why? Well, we see why straight away. Look at what Jesus does next, verses 31 and 32. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That is Peter saying, you're not the king. That's not how the kingdom of God rolls, says Peter. None of this being rejected, suffering, dying stuff, Peter tells him off. But Jesus' response is to rebuke Peter. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, he says, but merely human concerns. And so then Jesus calls together the crowd and the disciples and explains to them that suffering is not just the way of the king, It's the way of the kingdom. It's the way of everyone in God's kingdom. Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The disciples get it, but they don't. They've seen what Jesus has done. They've seen him. They've heard him. They've come to the right conclusion that he is the Christ, the King. But they've got a completely wrong idea of what that means, of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, but also for them as those who are following him. They're like the blind man whose sight Jesus restored, but only after two goes, which we heard in the Bible reading. Mark has deliberately described this unusual healing between these two conversations that Jesus has with his disciples. It's a physical enactment of what's going on with the disciples and their problems seeing Jesus. After healing the blind man in chapter 8 verses 22 to 26, Jesus asks him, do you see anything? And the man says, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And it's only after Jesus lays hand on him a second time that his sight is fully restored. Now, this is not some dodgy healing effort by Jesus. This is a physical enactment of what's going on with the disciples. They are like this formerly blind man who now sees tree people. He's not blind, but then his sight is not fully restored either. So here's the answer to Jesus' original question to the disciples in the boat. Do you still not see or understand? They do see, but only partially. At the moment when they look at Jesus, it's like they see tree people. And the situation doesn't improve, not straight away. Mark records that seven days later, Jesus takes Peter James and John up on a high mountain there they see Jesus the King transfigured into all his true glory it's like the curtains of heaven are pulled back and they get to see who Jesus really is in all his heavenly brilliant shining glory and if that isn't clear enough for them they hear God the Father's voice from heaven saying this is my son whom I love listen to him, and yet they still don't really understand. Peter doesn't know what to do, and he says some crazy stuff about building tents for Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the mountain. And as they walk down the mountain, the three disciples are discussing amongst themselves what Jesus might possibly mean with this talk of rising from the dead. They still don't get it. They still don't really get him. They're still looking at Jesus and seeing Tree people. It won't be until they see Jesus resurrected from the grave that they will finally put all the pieces together and understand. So, what does this mean for you and me? I can't help wondering if we all fail to see Jesus properly. Jesus is the glorious, suffering King. Is that how you see him? See, I wonder if we've really embraced the reality that Jesus is the suffering king and that suffering is not just his way, but our way too, if we're to follow him. Or is that suffering bit obscured in your vision of Jesus? See, honestly, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be rejected by my neighbours, by the people I know in my community or by my campus. I try to avoid suffering as much as possible. But I wonder if my problem there is that I'm not seeing Jesus clearly. I'm like Peter saying, no, Jesus, surely suffering doesn't have to be part of the plan. I'm not seeing clearly. Am I seeing Jesus, the suffering king, who says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But anyone who loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. When I look at Jesus, do I see the suffering king who calls me to suffer with him? Or do I have some other vision of Jesus? Do I see tree people? But Jesus is also the glorious king. When I think about Jesus being revealed on the mountain in all his transfigured glory, I wonder again whether I really see Jesus clearly. Is this glorious human being the Jesus I think I understand or is the Jesus of my vision the Jesus of my faith too domesticated too bland too like me frankly rather than the glorious son of man revealed on that mountain am I really seeing Jesus clearly or again like the disciples do I look at Jesus and see tree people when I treat obedience to Jesus half-heartedly or just have Jesus as an accessory to my life rather than the glorious king at the very center, that's when I've not really seen him in his glory or understood who he is. When you look at Jesus, who do you see? Because I'll tell you who he is. The glorious Suffering Christ King who calls each of us to repent, believe and follow him. Who do you think he is?